the fundamental principles of this country, democracy, multiculturalism, a free speech, healthcare, these are all indigenous inventions. The thing that really frustrates me is I often get the question, when do we know reconciliation's here? Like somehow, like it's gonna be like little confetti guns. Like it's gonna be boom, you know, it's all here. Reconciliation has arrived. Reconciliation will never be that. It will be moments. If you wanna see reconciliation, drive by any school playground on September 30th, and especially elementary. And so what do you see? Is you see kids from all walks of life wearing orange shirts, playing together, trying to figure each other out, and then arguing. And that's reconciliation. Hello, I'm Michael Benarash, president of the University of Manitoba. Welcome to season two of my podcast, What's the Big Idea? I'm excited to share more conversations with big thinkers from the UM community who are contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well-being of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. Together, we'll unpack the big ideas their work explores with topics ranging from health research to climate science to social justice. There's something for everyone. You're about to hear a fascinating and eye-opening conversation I recently had with Professor Negan Sinclair as part of a live event held at the university. Dr. Sinclair is the former head of the Department of Indigenous Studies. He's one of the most sought after national voices on education, politics, and reconciliation. He has five degrees. He's been an Indigenous content consultant and writes a regular column in the Winnipeg Free Press. Personally, I'm so thankful to have partners like Dr. Sinclair who lead us forward in the spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Enjoy. I was just going to invite Dr. Sinclair up, but you should know he has a very good sense of humor. And he told me what he would really like is me to play Bob Barker and say, Dr. Negan Sinclair, come on down. <laughs> We all know that Bob Barker is indigenous, right? Like, you all know that? Yeah. He was born on Rose, Rosebud Sioux Reservation. So in honor of the late Bob Barker. So there you go, a little homage. Professor Negan Sinclair, what a treat it is to sit down with you. I think you're one of the most respected contemporary thinkers in this country. You're the former head of University of Manitoba's Department of Indigenous Study, a position you first held nearly 10 years ago Overt Mercury taught the first Indigenous Studies course at the University of Manitoba, and that spurred the creation of your department, which is the second oldest in the country. And historically, though, our university has underappreciated its value, even once shuttering it in 1982 for budget reasons, until, rightfully and thankfully, a community uproar spurred to reverse its decision and open it back up. I give this context because this story is reflective, I think, of so much in our country in regards to reconciliation. We take some steps forward, then we falter. We try to push forward once again, being pushed by those willing to say and do the hard things that are necessary. And I believe you've been one of those people here in Canada, one of those voices that has helped keep us moving forward. And so I'm really excited to speak to you today. So to begin our conversation, it's the question I've been asking all the guests on this show, the central question, 
What's your big idea? Well, miigwech for having me here. Bonjour, Dimey Maganaduk. Nigan webedam nadijna kas namagoshin dodem. It's nice to be here. It's nice to speak the language of the territory and speaking about the territory in which we live and all the different beings that are looking upon us for tonight. I think that is the big idea. You know, the big idea that I have and many others that are within this room have, which is that we here at the University of Manitoba not only have an obligation to embed, integrate, and then be led by Indigenous knowledge, the ways in which Manitoba has always been. It is Indigenous peoples who took people in, taught them the ways of how to live in this place, taught them where the food is, taught them where the medicines are, taught them all the science and math, all the biological knowledge that goes into the very names of this place, to the principles of our relationships. And so we have an obligation and a responsibility to embody that within our practices. And in the past, we haven't done that. In fact, we've done the opposite of that. Uh, if you think about the apology that was made by the president a number of years ago uh, during the truth and reconciliation process of training educators to assimilate Indigenous children, so we have an obligation of inheriting that history and doing something about it and becoming the best institution that we can to practice what I think it is to have a responsibility to create a better Manitoba. And that will involve uh, training Indigenous peoples to become stronger Indigenous peoples, not to become stronger non-Indigenous peoples or whatever else that society seeks Indigenous peoples to become as something other than themselves. At the same time, there's the 80% of Manitoba that's non-Indigenous. And so... The fact is that every single person in Manitoba lives beside, works beside, or is married to an Indigenous person. And the fact is that going in the future on campus, we are training an entire generation of Indigenous peoples who are taking place within businesses, the private, the public sphere. And as a result, we have to prepare non-Indigenous Manitobans for what will be a future in which Indigenous peoples are no longer locked onto reserves, no longer shamed into becoming, going into the institutions that have marginalized us and oppressed us, but that we have Indigenous peoples now en masse. We are creating a mass of competent leaders in the Indigenous community, and we need to prepare Manitobans to what does that mean? What does that mean to work effectively with Indigenous peoples, work effectively with Indigenous communities, and then most importantly, to not harm those communities, but to help build a better Manitoba for the future for everyone. Thank you. And so what do you say to... Manitobans, Canadians, or anybody who says, well, you know, that happened a long time ago. That wasn't me. What role do I have to play in helping solve problems that were created hundreds of years ago? Um, how do you respond to those people? So, I mean, there's a number of approaches, and I get, because we have uh, an Indigenous credit requirement at the university now, uh, which many of our colleagues have worked very hard to get. In fact, our former department head, Kerry Miller, worked very, very hard to get that passed. The fact is that there's many different ways to approach that answer, but you know what I do? I do something really simple. I, I ask people to pull out their driver's license, and I say, let's look at your driver's license. Are there any Indigenous principles in your life, or have Indigenous peoples influenced you? And a lot of people would say no, and then I say, well, what about that word Winnipeg on your driver's license? What about that word Manitowabal? Uh, what about that word kanata? It's clear that you are built by indigenous knowledge. You carry that very much in terms of your identity. The fundamental parts of your identity, if someone were to pull you over and say, who are you? You would say, 
these words which you have inherited from indigenous peoples. And so therefore, it's not about what happened yesterday. It's about what's happening right now in that every single person inherits relationships with indigenous peoples by simply being here, which is the reason why, you know, in my activist days, we would go down and welcome newcomers at the airport or that we would remind Canadians by traffic slowdowns that, that what's happening in Wet'suwet'en or what's happening at Pipelines or what's happening up north in Manitoba Hydro, that this is impacting in downtown Winnipeg because we use that electricity that's flooding out communities in the north. So this isn't about yesterday. This is about very much tomorrow. And the good, the bad, the great, the ugly, you don't get to cherry pick history. We have all inherited uh, the violence and the genocide that's happened with Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples continue to benefit from that. But they also continue to benefit from the really great things that make us all in this relationship, which is treaties, which is the words on your driver's license, which is the fact that all of us together, um, uh, the fundamental principles of this country, democracy, multiculturalism, a free speech, healthcare, these are all indigenous inventions. It was not English and French people who invented democracy or healthcare or the idea that everybody gets a role, everybody gets a word. In fact, if we followed what Europeans had to say in the 15th century, it would look very much like the 1%. It would look very much like the only people that matter are the Pope and the King. Uh, it would look very much like only the rich get to say and make decisions for everybody. It was indigenous peoples who said, we need to share. We need to take care of the disenfranchised, the elders, the children. We need to make sure that everybody is heard in the circle. And then we come to a decision collectively. It was Indigenous peoples who invented all of those things. And so Canadians need to understand that, yes, we inherit these brutal legacies, but at the same time, we also inherit the incredible things that everything that makes you Canadian is Indigenous in its core. As part of our university's commitment to reconciliation, you know, we've been working to attract and support Indigenous students. So 10 years ago, we had just over 2,000 self-declared Indigenous students, representing about 7% of the student population. And now in 2022, we had about 2,600, which was about 9%, which is well below the proportion of within our province. And I imagine you'd say that not enough is being done, and, and I'd agree with that. And, and so as former head of the Department of Indigenous Studies, can you share your thoughts on how University of Manitoba might better support Indigenous student success? Well, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. So I might not say that not enough's being done perhaps because things have happened in my lifetime that I had no belief would happen. We have an entire group of indigenous young people with PhDs who are continually and consistently forcing me to become better as a more a stronger Anishinaabe in my academic work. Like these kinds of things I didn't really think would happen in my lifetime. And uh, when I graduated from the University of British Columbia, the University of British Columbia had this crazy idea to graduate 500 Indigenous PhDs in five years, and they did it in three. But things that happen in my lifetime, I think about my grandfather and how uh, much violence he experienced in his lifetime. And then I think about my father, who was literally the first of an industry like literally the first indigenous judge in Manitoba history. So when you are the first of an entire industry, my dad's still alive, he's still here. In fact, he was speaking this past weekend at the, at the Ngamazin event at the university here. The kind of change that's happening so quickly is very inspiring. 
It's also sometimes destabilizing. I think the university doesn't know how to handle that change that happens very quickly because the fact is that when you bring Indigenous students in, you have to change the fundamental tenets of the university itself. It can't just be about a bunch of white guys in Greece that we're worshiping all the time. It's about saying, what does that mean for our buildings? How do we build our buildings differently? How do we teach differently? How do we counsel differently? How do we lead differently? And so uh, what I would say is that, you know, we are the second largest on-campus Indigenous community in the country. We have an obligation to support those students in the best way possible. And I think that we've done some very significant things, Megaziagamic and the Access Program and developing the, Indigenous, the Department of Indigenous Studies. But we, our commitment sometimes wavers. I think sometimes what we do is we think, oh, well, that's enough, and we check the box, and then we go focus on these other things. But the problem is, is that we have yet to scratch the surface of potential of Manitoba, of the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And I think a lot of the issues seem to stem from something you've said, the stories that we tell. So you have a degree in politics, a degree in education, uh, and three in English, and you've taught in high schools and universities, and, and you have unique insights then into how the stories we believe are helping and, and hindering reconciliation, both within the classroom and within society at large. And what changes are you starting to see in the narratives that are being upended? So the most powerful story and the foundational story of Canada has two parts. Uh, the first part is that Canadians have been taught consciously, subconsciously, overtly, that they are superior to Indigenous peoples. And the second part of that story is that Indigenous peoples have been taught to be inferior. And the equal parts to that narrative means that we've built a country in which Indigenous peoples don't matter, Indigenous rights don't matter, Indigenous governments don't matter, and therefore we can justify to ourselves why an Indian Act exists here in 2023. The challenge is, is that until very recently, that narrative has been almost absolutely uninterrupted. And in our lifetime, in the past eight years, like it or not, good, bad, great, ugly, uh, we have the most progressive federal government in history that's showing interest. I'm not telling you that they're successful, but they're showing interest. But I see change happening more in the past decade, which gives me encouragement. The problem with that, and the, the problem with that story of Canadian superiority and Indigenous inferiority is every time we take a step, there is a wide-scale resistance to that step. And in fact, sometimes, and I think we, we might be in a moment because we are in higher inflation, Canada's economy, whenever Canada's economy is under stress, uh, you just go take more Indigenous land. You go take more Indigenous resources. You trample on Indigenous rights. That's been the pattern of Canada in the past. And you can see that movement festering and growing and gaining political strength right now with certain segments of the federal government and the provincial government. And I think the refusal to look for Indigenous women at landfills is a product of that belief of that Indigenous peoples don't matter. So that story is very powerful. But we have to remember that every time we take a step, there is going to be a uh, a removal or a, an attempt to push us back. And I see this right now, um, this is a shameless plug of my own podcast, Negon and the Lone Ranger, the Free Press podcast, check it out. Uh, uh, Lone Ranger, by the way, is Dan Lett. Uh, he doesn't get a name in the podcast, but he's an excellent and wonderful co-podcaster. Uh, is that we've been talking a little bit on the show about in Manitoba, there is some backlash to reconciliation, particularly in certain political circles. And as a result, it's becoming politically favorable again to be quite racist or to be um, 
to say things like, uh, I'm not going to search the landfill and get political points with that. Or the same kind of things that got Brian Pallister removed as premier, which was saying inaccurate and offensive things about Indigenous peoples. That's now getting favor in certain corners of the province. And so there's a real moment, I think, in which when we take a step that we really have to commit to that. And we have to then hold each other accountable to be able to uh, do that, not just at the university, but also in our workplaces, in our family. And we have to believe in each other. We have to really believe and commit to this work. And I'll give you just one example of that. We're about to see the largest billion-dollar investment in this city's history by Manitobans, meaning in the Noea Odena project on Route 90, just a few miles from here. We're going to see the largest commercial development project. This is not done by some multi-corporation from Texas or New York. We're talking about Manitobans building Manitoba, and I don't know if you're a sovereigntist, but I certainly believe in this place, and we're gonna see billions of dollars that will both be invested and then reap the benefits of and stay right here. And a Manitoba will be built by who? Indigenous people. You'll also see that downtown with two buildings, the Hudson Bay development by the Southern Chiefs, and then on the other side of that, uh, on Portage Avenue, right downtown with the BMO building with the Manitoba Métis Federation. It is Indigenous peoples who are leading the economy of this place. And therefore, we as a university, I think, have an obligation to really commit to that idea consistently and continually and not go, okay, we've got this new program, we've got a cluster hire of Indigenous professors, we need to go put energy elsewhere. We have to consistently commit to that and make sure that we don't just ebb and flow in our commitment to Indigenous students, Indigenous professors, Indigenous knowledge as a whole. And it comes back to your point is not just when economic times are good and so we don't feel like we're maybe losing anything individually or threaten to lose anything, but at all times should become part of the narrative, which, you know, you've talked a lot about. Yeah, I mean, we can't, uh, there's a really great um, a thing that my father said to me when I was, uh, when I, you know, I was really frustrated about reconciliation. And uh, I remember he got an honorary degree here uh, a number of years ago, and I was 20-something. Uh, he received it from St. John's College, the same building that we're in right now. And I remember this was way before the TRC. And I said to my father, and uh, it was literally before he was getting the degree, which is probably not the greatest time to tell him this, but I said, Dad, the fact that you're accepting this honorary PhD from a bunch of Christians is an insult to our people. Yeah, I'm very popular. <laughs> uh, but I said that to my father, you know? And uh, I was a fiery 20-year-old and I think rightfully angry. And then I watched my father do something really remarkable. He came out and in front of most of the uh, Anglican leadership of Manitoba at the college, hundreds of people who came to see him get an honorary degree, he made an argument for the TRC. He made an argument for an investigation into the issue of residential schools and that this country needs to commit to survivors and listen to them and believe them. Truth and apologies are achieved through words, important words, yes. But the next step, reconciliation, is achieved only through acting differently. And each of you in this room and each of you in this country has a role to play. Whether you're an Aboriginal person or a non-Aboriginal person, a teacher or a student, an elder or a young person, reconciliation will not be easy and it will take generations. But its rewards will be many. And when he came off the stage, uh, my dad also likes to taunt a little bit. He said, that's why I do that, right? 
And I realized in that moment that reconciliation is not just about the good times. It's about having the hard conversations. And can we stay in the room? And nobody got up and left. I mean, they probably weren't going to leave an honorary degree ceremony. But he said some harsh truths to an audience that was there. And a really remarkable thing happened. I think a lot of minds were changed that day. I think a lot of people had a vision of the TRC for the first time. This was way back, uh, you know, 15 years before the TRC, about 2002, 2001, 2002. And I, too, got a vision of change. And I like to think that he was showing me something that day, that reconciliation is not just about the easy times, the easy conversations, the territorial acknowledgments and wearing orange shirts on September 30th. It's about the hard work. And the hard work really has yet to take place. How do we return all the stolen land? Or how do we change the fundamental tenets of this country, which are based on capitalism, uh, individuality, and frankly, racism, that indigenous peoples and nations don't have, get to have a say in anything to do with either provinces or municipalities or frankly, the federal government. Like, what, is it that, what does that really mean if we had an indigenous parliament like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples asked us to do right alongside the Canadian parliament? Like, that's the vision of reconciliation is that we would be partners and co-govern Canada. And uh, we're a bit, a bit away from that yet. And uh, I think we're still at the point where we're saying, you know, why are we doing territorial acknowledgements? Like, that's like step one in a billion-step journey. And there's going to be a lot of hard steps along the way. Or, or I've often heard reconciliation, you know, being talked about as climbing a mountain, right? As, or, and so how do we climb up that mountain and continue to move forward? And, I mean, I think it always works better if we're climbing up that mountain together and we're pulling each other up as we go along. And I think that's why you've often talked about the importance of education and the importance of truth as we take that journey. Yeah, I mean, like, to be honest, I didn't want to be in Indigenous studies. I had no idea. I had no plans on that. My plan was to go off and be a literary scholar and, you know, write about poetry, try to be a terrible poet myself, you know, like, I was, that was my vision. And so when I left high school teaching in 2004, I went to Oklahoma with the intention to become, like, a fiction writer, right? But soon enough, what I found is, A, I'm a terrible fiction writer. Uh, but what I found was, is that the most things that fascinate me the most, the, what I realized is it wasn't really novels and poetry, although that's a really great place to spend your time as a literary scholar. The most incredible stuff that inspired me, that made me a better Anishinaabe, that really convinced me of the amazing brilliance, or what we call indigenous brilliance, or the creativity of our people, the resilience of our people, is archival documents from the 19th century, the 18th century, and reading about the contact that early Anishinaabe people, who were the first writers in English, they're the first indigenous peoples to write in English in this country, are mostly all Ojibwe, and they're all trained by each other. So George Kapoway, or Peter Jones, Kakwakanabe, or John Sunday, or... Uh, you know, all the different people, uh, Mingwadas, George Mingwadas, you know, all these incredible Ojibwe writers in the 19th century. And what they were writing about was love. What they were writing about was truth. What they were writing about is how do we navigate a world that we are being invaded and yet maintain a sense of Anishinaabe as who we fundamentally are. And that has been something that's driven me as a writer for now writing in the newspaper, and how do we lead in an Anishinaabe way and maintain ourselves in a world full of hatred and racism and much conflict? How do we maintain ourselves in the face of all of that and then bring people also along that journey as well? 
That's beautiful. And to think of a world where we could live that way, I think it's something we can only at this point imagine, but um, it does seem like in many ways we've headed in other directions recently with all the division that there is in the world. Well, yes, I agree. I mean, but the thing that really frustrates me is I often get the question, when do we know reconciliation's here, right? Like somehow, like it's going to be like, you know, those, uh, those little confetti guns. Like it's going to be, boom, you know, it's all here. <laughs> Reconciliation has arrived. Reconciliation will never be that. Here's what it will be. It will be moments. And we have witnessed many moments in our lifetime. And I wrote a column one time where I started off by saying, if you want to see reconciliation, uh, drive by any school playground on September 30th, and especially elementary. And so what do you see? Is you see kids from all walks of life wearing orange shirts, playing together, trying to figure each other out, and then arguing. And that's reconciliation. And it only lasts for recess. That's the thing about reconciliation. It's just going to be a moment, right? My job in my lifetime is to try to make the recess, the 10 minutes, into 12, into 15, into maybe an hour. Maybe we'll get lucky and it will be a year. Maybe we'll get lucky and it will be a generation one day. That's all reconciliation can be because it's something that involves consistent, continual, endless work because that's what relationships require. And we have a huge body of work behind us and currently in front of us that are gonna encourage us not to act in a kind and just and equitable way, to honor treaties, to honor our relationships, to see each other as human beings. So as a result, we're constantly gonna be sort of wrecked out of that moment and then back to the same old of treating indigenous peoples like they don't matter, treating Canadians like they're the only ones that matter. And so how can we make that moment last into moments. Thank you for that. And, and we're almost out of time, and I would be remiss to not ask you about the book that you're working on now, and if you can tell us what the title is and uh, <laughs> what ideas are you exploring. So it's with McClellan and Stewart, which is an imprint of Penguin. So this book is, uh, is based on my columns with the Winnipeg Free Press. And uh, what I've written over the years is pieces about my experiences in Winnipeg. So for instance, uh, a story that I've told about is about the Kikinen Center. So the Kikinen Center is an indigenous senior care facility that has been neglected by the WRHA. And what you have is this really weird anomaly in the city where you have all these residential school survivors who are being mistreated in the worst of ways that are reminiscent of residential school to show that the, that kind of treatment of elders is still very much endemic to the healthcare system. Anyway, so I wrote that piece, and so the publisher in Toronto contacted me and said, we'd really like to hear about a perspective of Winnipeg in the good, the bad, the great, the ugly. But I think that, you know, when we have people parachute in the city from Toronto for 20 minutes and then make comments about us, I think that is the most, A, this is the most Toronto thing you could possibly do. And then two, it's something that I think people have a vision of Winnipeg that is very one-dimensional. And they don't see that it is Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Calgary, Thunder Bay. It is these places that will lead the country on the most important issue. It will never be Toronto. It will never be Montreal. It will never be Ottawa. And that's not bashing those places, but they just don't have 
the proportional people, they don't have the organizations, they don't have the history that we do here in Manitoba to deal on the most pivotal issue. The issue that will deal with climate change, inflation, that will deal with the issue of war and peace and, and what will be our forthcoming battle over water and resources in this country, the solutions will come from the prairies. It will come from this place. From, and so that's what this, that book's about. That's my intro, by the way. Which mean I will not be sold anywhere outside of the Thunder Bay. <laughs> I don't think they're actually going to sell it, even try to sell it out there. So, so I, I think we'll all look forward to being published and have an opportunity to read it. Many of us uh, really enjoy your pieces in the, in the free press all the time. And I think like those pieces today, you've spoken your truth and you've given us a lot to think about and you've challenged us to be better and to extend those moments of reconciliation from 12 minutes to 15 to 20 and, and longer. And for that, we are so grateful. Thank you. We're going to take some questions. Okay, okay, all right. We have a question here. Hello. Thank you for that discussion of education. I'll ask, what can we do to service remote and rural First Nation communities with research and education programs, community-led? They don't want to immediately come to Winnipeg, and they may never want to come to Winnipeg. They do want education, and there's no opportunities for them. And... Um, because it costs a lot to come here, they have to fly out of these communities, and they see the racism as well, right? Also, uh, I experienced this firsthand. Uh, when we send students from the north here, uh, we have really wonderful supports on campus, but then they go out to their apartment or they go out to uh, the city. And, you know, frankly, if you're coming from Pocketawagan, if you're coming from Norway House, coming from Pegwith. There's more things to do here than, uh, and more trouble to get into than almost you know, anything people have experienced in their life. And so uh, for a lot of our students, you, there's a lot of stress. But you know, like one of the frustrating things for me is when I was a department head is that I wasn't allowed to buy bus passes for students, but this would save a student's life. It, they would make them, because they don't know money, right? And the band funding is always stop-start, not because of mismanagement by First Nations, but because Ottawa sends the money for post-secondary funding after they send the list of post-secondary students. So usually what ends up happening is that's always delayed for a lot of First Nations because they don't know who's going to university. So they, get, they send in the list in late August. Money is sent to fund those students in mid-September. What happens to those two weeks? Students are sleeping in Migaziagamik, or they're literally the first food that we feed during the orientation week is that's the only meal they're getting that day. We have to face the reality that when we have Indigenous students, uh, they bring unique challenges that are far bigger than the university, and that may mean we have to think beyond the university. And that's not be giving Indigenous peoples extra or special, or that's just re being a uh, university that's responsible to be, you know, anyways, that's, that wasn't your question. Your question is, how do we support communities, northern communities? So I think that this has been something that I've struggled with. Uh, there's a really great term that the mayor always uses, and so I'm going to steal it from the mayor, because lately I've been thinking, it's wraparound services. Meaning that we have to think beyond just the students enrolled, and so how do we now make sure that they have the full support to be on campus, uh, but they're not on campus? And that's going to involve partnership, that's going to involve empowering, and it's going to involve resources. 
on the issue of education outside, the, the University of Manitoba does have funds through fundraising to set up five learning hubs in Indigenous communities. We've set one up. We're on the process of the second one and the third. So, And the ideas on some of the things that Nigan has spoken about, a place where you can actually go and take a course. And it's not just a course at U of M. Any educational institution could use it and the students could take it from there. The technology, a staff member there. And so the idea is to really create these learning centers across different parts of the province to try to serve the community. And hopefully over the next few years, we'll see quite a bit of uptake to those as a pilot. And then, you know, our hope is always that uh, additional resources will come forward so that, you know, I've heard from students from all parts of Manitoba that they don't mind coming to, to Winnipeg for a couple of years for the degree, but it'd be nice if they could stay at home for a year or two and do part of their degree at home. And they, they have strong ties to home. And their parents and their communities know that if they come here for four years, it's less likely to go back. But if those ties remain, it's more likely for, that they'll go back and contribute to their communities. So again, I, I think we're out of time. I want to thank you for tonight. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thanks, Nigan. That was great. Thanks That's so great. much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What's the Big Idea? Reconciliation is not just about the good times. It's about having the hard conversations. This is just one of the many powerful insights I'll be taking away from this episode. If you enjoyed our conversation, share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the series. Next time, I'll be joined by Nazem Chichik, a professor in the Department of Biosystems Engineering here at UM. We'll be exploring how research can support sustainable agriculture that addresses food shortages and climate change concerns, a vital conversation for these times. For more information about the university and its global impact, visit umanitoba.ca. See you next time.